want to look at the book of Proverbs, if you want to turn there, if you were at the book of Psalms, opening right up to the middle of the Bible. One book to the back is the book of Proverbs. So let me read a few of these verses. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, for attaining wisdom and discipline, for understanding words of insight, for acquiring a disciplined and prudent life, doing what is right and just and fair, for giving prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the young. Let the wise listen and add to their learning, and let the discerning get guidance for understanding proverbs and parables, the sayings and riddles of the wise. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and discipline. Listen, my son, to your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. They will be a garland to grace your head and a chain to adorn your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not give in to them. If they say, come along with us, let us lie and wait for someone's blood. Let us waylay some harmless soul. Let us swallow them alive like the grave and whole like those who go down to the pit. We will get all sorts of valuable things and fill our houses with plunder. Though in your lot with us, and we will share a common purse. My son, do not go along with them. Do not set foot on their paths, for their feet rush to sin. They are swift to shed blood. How useless to spread a net in full view of all the birds. These men lie in wait for their own blood. They waylay only themselves. Such is the end of all who go after ill-gotten gain. It takes away the lives of those who get it. We're talking about the path of wisdom as we talk about the things that are in the book of, of Proverbs. Proverbs is one of a number of books that is formally called the writings in the Old Testament. We begin with Job and Psalms and Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and then the Song of Solomon, and some add to it Jeremiah's book called The Lamentation. And then when we come into the New Testament, the only formal book that we call the wisdom literature is Jesus' brother, James, who writes his book. That's considered in the New Testament uh, a wisdom book. Now, when we talk about the path of wisdom in this opening chapter, we're talking about the starting point or the beginning point of a path of wisdom. And what does wisdom do? What does this path of wisdom gain us? Well, first of all, it leads us to life. As you read these proverbs and move through them, it's to lead us into a greater life. It's to lead us away from death. It's to lead us to Jesus. And in leading us to Jesus, if we come in wisdom to Jesus, then the wisdom of the Old Testament leads us not merely to life, but leads us to eternal life. So the, the wisdom itself is, is being freely offered. It's being freely offered to anybody who wishes to gain life and understanding about life. Here the author, Solomon, the king, 
he is the author of a great deal of the book of uh, Proverbs. There are other authors, authors, but all of them here are making these kinds of promises to us. Now, if we look for a second, these are some pretty bold promises. It says to know wisdom and instruction, to discern sayings, to receive instruction in wise behavior, to give prudence to the naive. It says that a wise man can grow in understanding, and a man of possessing understanding already can grow in his ability to give wise counsel. These are some pretty bold promises. Now, one of the things that, it's, that these bold promises are here in the beginning of this book are intended to entice us. They're challenging us. They're saying, there's something here for everyone, and every one of you needs what I am offering, so join in on this path and begin this direction in your life. Now, there is this language that we begin to see in verse 8, where it says, To my son, your father's instruction, don't forget your mother's teaching. The idea ideally would be that a person would get on this path very early in life that they would maintain this path all the days of their life, and as their life matures and as their life just kind of morphs back and forth through one experience to another experience, that their wisdom would grow through looking at these words and the various life experiences that a person goes through. So the promise here, it matures with life, it sustains life, until the end of physical life. Now, another thing here. No one is forced to travel the same path. Now, that may seem a little odd, but in reality, the idea of wisdom is it's your life, and it's someone else's life, and wisdom is a common commodity And as we move through our life, then wisdom basically promises to wrap its arms around each one of us in our need and allow each one of us to develop to the fullness of God's purpose for our lives. So it's not like we're all forced through the same grid to come out the same way. It's nothing like that at all. It's very personal, it's very unique and individual for each one of us, but it has these common promises and these common blessings. Now you think, what have we got here, a man that can write this? Well, it's almost like this man is a great intellect, maybe a philosopher. Well, he's Solomon. You'd say, well, goodness, Solomon was the what man of all that lived in the Old Testament? The wisest, yeah. No one would ever be like him to the person of Christ. That's kind of the, the way the Old Testament, well, you say, well, I can understand how this would, you know, fit with him. But yet, who is another one of the men in the Old Testament that gives us wisdom? Well, it's Solomon's father. 
David. Well, what was David? Well, he was a shepherd. And out at night with his musical instrument, and what do we see? God is teaching him about life. One of my favorite stories that deals with, uh, with uh, the life of King David is the story of Wicked Nabal. And if you go and look in that, in I think it's the 25th and 26th chapter of, uh, of, of 2 Samuel, you have this wicked Nabal, and you have David and his men, and they're asking this man, Nabal, uh, who's been shearing his sheep, to give David and his men a few of these sheep that they might use them uh, for a celebration, for uh, a festival meal. And Nabal, whose name means fool, says, Who's David, and what in the world am I doing supporting him? I won't. Well, then all of a sudden, David's hears this, he's incensed, he's going to go wipe out Nabal and all of his people and, and take all of this stuff for himself. But one of the Nabal's workers goes to Nabal's wife, whose name is Abigail, and says to Abigail, this is what your husband's done. This isn't good for us. And we see Abigail right away, she goes and prepares the things that David needs and meets him before he can come to this violence and turns him away from it. She acted wisely. Her husband acted foolishly. It's just a wonderful picture of the aspect of wisdom in the life of David. Later on in the book of, of Proverbs, you see that there are other writers. There's a man there who's called a scribe. Uh, and he is one of the men that contributes, so a person of letters. But they're craftsmen all the way through here uh, that are talked about in the Old Testament. Uh, animal husbandry is seen to be a, a picture of a wise man who knows how to take care of his livestock. Um, one of the things that they used to teach us in being shepherds in in seminary is how often it's necessary for the shepherd to see the sheep. Um, most shepherds in the Old Testament saw all their sheep every day. They knew their condition. That was wise. You see, musicians are held forth as being people who are wise. You see jewelers and people that are able to do artistic craftsmanship these people are wise. Now, in the 31st chapter of the book of Proverbs, you have the ideal woman. Now, it would not be wise for any of you women to say, I'm going to model my life to be precisely like this ideal woman. You would lose <laughs> and get greatly discouraged. The idea of an ideal wife are these are the kinds of things that a wise wife would do. Um, some of them do better than others, and some of them you might not do at all. But it's a picture of what it means to be wise. And so the language here is, is very practical, and it's meant for us to develop in life, no matter who we are, uh, no matter what our condition is, that this wisdom that comes from God will sustain us and ennoble our lives throughout our life.
Now, again, I've, I constantly try and tell you when I'm repeating an illustration, and I, I'm not sure that I've used this illustration here, but I've used it many times. And this happened in Scotland somewhere back in the 1950s in Glasgow. One of the Presbyterian ministers that I've had the privilege of meeting went to this Presbyterian church in Glasgow. It was a pretty large church. It was an affluent church. It was in an industrial city. It was in a university city. And this was a church that had a great deal of influence. Well, lo and behold, in this church shows up this young man. And he can hardly speak, as it says, the king's English. It's, he just really, it's hard to make sense what he's talking about when he's talking to you. Well, he goes to work in one of the foundries there in Glasgow, and the lowest job in the foundry was a assistant. This man could not qualify to be an assistant. So he was made an assistant's helper. Now, you get a picture that this man was, in the world's standards, not very with it. Well, he began to come to the Presbyterian Church. Pretty odd fit. But he was there whenever the doors were open. And he grew in that church. He actually learned to read in that church. And, of course, the primary thing he wanted to read, we wanted to read his Bible. Well, as this man matured, everybody began to understand there's really something different about this man. God has given him a gift, and the gift is the gift of wisdom. And it wasn't long before the university students and the medical students were seeking this man out to open to them the wisdom of God and the decisions that they were needing to make in their lives. Now, the pastor said one of the most moving experiences that he ever had as the pastor of this church was one night in the prayer meeting when this same man got up and as he prayed, he addressed God this way, O oh God, O oh thou who makest the, the simple wise... O oh God, thou who makes the simple wise. That's what had happened to him. Now, that is the promise. The, the promises to you, the promises to me, the promises to you in your condition and me in my condition, and as we pursue the path of wisdom, it will change our lives that dramatically. Well, all the paths of wisdom, the second thing we need to see here, have one clear point of beginning, and we see that in verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Now, notice that that word Lord is spelled a little differently than what we're used to. It's Lord with all capital letters. Now, if you see that, that's a direct indication that this is God's covenant name that's being used here. It's not the word God. It's the word Yahweh, or some of the older translations would use the word Jehovah. 
It's God's covenant name, the name that he revealed himself to Moses by as I am. So the covenant God is the God here that we're told that we're to fear. Now, if you come into the book of Hebrews in the sixth chapter, and there's a really a wisdom statement that's made here about the fear of the Lord. What does that mean? And so in chapter 6 of the book of Hebrews in 7 and 8, it says something like this. For the ground that drinks the rain, which often falls on it, and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if after it drinks the rain which often falls on it, it yields thorns and thistles, it's worthless and close to being cursed, and ends up being burned. Now you can begin to see that there's a path. God blesses our lives. Are we taking the blessings that God bestows upon us and bringing forth appropriate fruit? If we're not, there's something to be feared. Uh, We could go through a number of verses like this. You remember the thieves on the cross? One of the thieves hurling, hurling abuse at Jesus. You know, save yourself and save us. The other thief looks at him and says to him, what's the first word out of that thief's mouth? Do you not fear God? Since we are here under that condemnation, These men are about ready to die. It's a fearful thing, as the book of Hebrews says, to fall into the hands of the living God. Uh, Jesus would say it uh, somewhat like this. Don't fear people that can kill the body. Who do you fear? The one that can kill the body and throw that person into hell. How does Paul say it? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, a proper sense of the fear of God. Now, this was captured by C.S. Lewis in the, the Chronicles of Narnia in one of the stories about this lion that represents Jesus, and the lion's name is Aslam. And one of the children who noticed that this Aslam has a, a pretty full-range personality, but The children love the lion, but after all, it's still a lion. (laughs) That's the kind of the idea. The children ask about the lion, is Aslan Aslan safe? And the person that is asked the question says, no, he's not safe, but he's good. Our God is not someone that we're just can say that we're just that kind of thought of a child's sense of safe. God is still God. And we have our responsibilities and our duties towards God. And the wise person begins there. 
We are in a covenant relationship with God. And we need to always hold that in our mind. All the paths of wisdom, if you're really going to be wise, you begin with this idea of the fear of God. Now, the third thing is that this, well, let me go back and say, what does it need to be afraid? You remember you telling you a couple of weeks ago about my buddy went swimming in the pond? And what did he find in the pond with him? 13-foot alligator. That was not a good thing. There are things to be feared. God, in this sense, in living our life, we live with a healthy respect of the God who is in covenant with us. Now, the third thing we want to say is that wisdom is passed down through discipleship. You see this in verse 8 and other verses here. Listen, my son, to your father's instruction. Do not forsake your mother's teaching. Now, there's an ideal here. How does this child grow up? Well, it grows up with two parents. <laughs> that the ideal? What else they grow up with? Those two parents are constantly doing what with themselves? Pouring themselves in to that child. That's the picture that you get here. And that this child learns. Uh, I, I was swearing that I wasn't going to use a car illustration, but I got to use one, so sorry. I bought a beautiful car, paid $5,500. Got the car on Saturday. Sunday, I drove it to church. Monday was a holiday. I drove the car off the road. The back tire came off the car when I was hot riding the car. The car went off the road, and there was a dent, a serious dent, in almost every panel around the car. It was probably the second nicest car I've ever owned. It was wonderful. Took it by Chip Miller's house on Saturday to take his son John David for a ride uh, on, on the, the day I bought it. Two days later, it's a wreck. My kids came off driving by on their bicycles in their car, and they looked at the car, and I got them back at the house that night. I said, uh, the car was in the garage. I said, see the car? Yep. Who did it? Now, this is the first time I've seen two boys that were trying to be smart, real smart. They're saying what? Nothing. I said, you're not going to get away with that. I said, who did this? Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Nope. I says, well, if you won't say it, I will. I did it. Now, what am I doing for my children? I'm, I'm, I'm owning responsibility. I'm training them. I'm training them. You do what I did, this is more than likely going to happen. It's passed down. 
Illustratively, it's no more here than a parent representing a teacher and a child representing the one that needs to be taught. You could be a discipler and you could have one person. You could be a discipler and you could have be teaching a whole bunch of people at the same time. But it's passed down like that. Today we have a lot in which we talk about life on life discipleship. That's a buzzword in the last 15 years. And really what you see here is Solomon's life. It's being thrown down as a parable alongside of other people's lives so that other people can look at Solomon's life and Solomon's teaching and look at their life and begin to understand how to bring their life into harmony with the things that Solomon's teaching. Um, who did this best? Who did it with three? And then did it with 12? And then did it with 70? And then sent them out into the whole world? That's what Jesus did? Jesus had intimate life-on-life relationships with Peter, James, and John. Then he had substantive life-on-life relationships with the other disciples. And then he had real impact on the lives of the 70. Of course, we know that there is the Mary and the Martha and the Lazarus that he had impact on and others in different places when he moved about. But he had these people, and he was giving them the benefit of all the things of his life. And they were learning very, very much the whole idea of the fear of the Lord. Now, just one point. You come to this, you say, I want my life to grow in a wise manner, like the scriptures are talking about. Dear friends, it's got to begin with the fear of God in the sense that you say, I want a personal relationship with this God, and you do this by asking Christ to come into your life, to be your savior, but then in being your savior, to being your teacher. And a saved person comes to Jesus and allows Jesus through his word to teach him all the days of their life. You can see it from the examples that are in the gospel. You can see it in the theology that explains Jesus' ministry in the epistles. And this is what it means for us today. If we don't begin with a personal relationship, then really we're only looking at this in a kind of a speculative and interested way. But we're not really looking at it in a way that says, I really want these kind of changes to take place in my character, in my life, so that I can be the person that the Lord wants me to be. I can be the person, since most of you have children, the person your children need you to be or your mate. So you have to begin here. This is what Jesus did. Remember what Paul said? Imitate me. How? As I am an imitator of Jesus Christ. It's the same idea. We can go through the entire New Testament and see this. About three Sundays ago, I'm, I'm walking around after the first service having some responsibilities in a couple different places in the building. And all of a sudden, Susan walks up to me and she says, Oh, 
Finally, I've caught up with you. I've been chasing you since the service was over. I says, what? She says, yeah. She says, last Sunday I was down at church because they have a home down at Tybee Island, and I went to this little Presbyterian church, and I met this lady, Elaine. And when Elaine found out that I went to the church here, she just went off telling me how great a pastor you were for her and her husband, and then when her husband got killed in a traffic accident, how you were a great pastor and saw her through that, and how you constantly tried to be a pastor for her and for her children. What had I been doing through that whole thing? I had been pouring myself into a family. And when the crisis came and this man was killed very suddenly, they came right back to the person that had been discipling them, caring for them, and allowing me to nurture their lives. And it went on for about three to four years after that. I mean, there were a lot of times for the first year or two, I probably talked to this woman once a week. Go down and meet with her children. How are they doing? Wisdom's passed on. That's the key point. It's passed on. Today we're told, what, how are we to live our faith? Faith is a what kind of a thing often? Personal, private, and it's not politically correct to impose yourself on somebody else. Well, it's not that way, and we need to see that. The last thing that we see here is because wisdom is developed in a life that is being lived, this wisdom is basically ethical. It's not theological, it's not philosophical, it's concrete. And so when you come down to this illustration that begins in verse 8 and in verse 10, it's when sinners say to you, let's get involved in some violence, let's take some people to the cleaner, let's take them out, let's take what's theirs and make it ours. Well, the author's right there to say, I've seen that. And God is not pleased. And this is what's going to happen. Later on in the second chapter, and we'll look at these in a weeks to come, there's sexual purity. My son, if this kind of a person that wants to entice you in a physical way comes along, don't go with them. And it talks about, very practically, it talks about money, it talks about greed, it talks about conduct. Well, I was a dorm parent at Belhaven College for a number of years. So I had the men's dormitory. I lived on the first floor, and the soccer boys were all on the first floor. They ran so much during the day, they were too lazy to go up the stairs to the second or third floor. And they had that whole part of the dorm just cornered. And I would be going up and down there because the girls on the campus liked the soccer boys. And I was constantly going up and down those halls. Well, you don't ever know what you're doing, what impact you're having. So one night this guy calls me. He's an elder from a church in Jackson, Mississippi. He says, you're the hot topic of, of discussion in our session meeting tonight. And I says, oh, why was that? Well, we were interviewing new deacons. I said, yeah. 
And he says, and this kid was in there, and we asked him, how did you become a Christian? He says, well, there's this guy named John Kinzer. He was at seminary, and he was running the dormitory here. And he'd go up and down the hall and tell us, boys, if you do what you want to do, you're going to be in trouble. Somebody else is going to be in trouble. You're going to get hurt, and they're going to get hurt, and you better not be doing that stuff. And I did, a lot more explicitly than I'm doing it here. He said, we laughed at him. We paid him no attention. (laughs) He says, now when we get together, we all talk about what John used to say and say, he sure was right. And here he was. I must say, he got the best of the batch at Belhaven College. But you don't know the impact you're having. Even when you're being someone like me, telling people things they don't want to hear because it tells what God wants them to hear. That's what we've got to do. We need it. I need it. You need it. And everybody else around us needs it. This is how we do it. We'll study this in the weeks to come. Father, bless our time. Make it very concrete. Make it very practical. Help us to see ourselves. Help us to see others. Help us to see opportunity. And help us to take advantage of the opportunity to be your impact in their lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.